I personally believe that one of the marks of a great church is at some point, somebody stands in front of the congregation and says, open your Bible. Open your Bible to Acts chapter 4. I'm so grateful for Pastor uh, Brent, who the last couple of weeks has been introducing us to the very first church that was planted in Jerusalem among these believers in Jesus. Jesus is fulfilling his promise to build his church, and we're getting glimpses of what this great church that he's building looks like. Uh, We found out that um, God used the Apostle Peter to preach the very first Christian message, and And uh, on that day, 3,000 people responded to the gospel, gave their hearts and their lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ, and the church was born on that day. And of course, Satan was not happy with that, and he wanted to extinguish that fire, and so he raised uh, persecution and outside opposition and tried to extinguish the church from the very beginning. And that didn't work, and so now what we're going to discover is Satan is going to try to change his tactic. And instead of trying to destroy it from the outside, he's going to try to pollute it from the inside. We're going to see one of the most shocking stories in all of the Bible here this morning. It should take your breath away. If I do my job right, you do your job right. There should be some audible gasp in response to what we're about to read. And along the way, we're going to learn some lessons about the church. We're going to learn some lessons about money. We're going to learn some message, some lessons about marriage. And we're going to learn something about the fear of God. Here's the big idea of the message this morning. It's this. God loves his church. Amen. Can we just get an amen to that? God loves his church. Do you love that which God loves? Do you love your church? Okay, that wasn't as as arousing response as the first time. You want another run at that? Do you love your church? God loves his church too. God loves his church so much that he is deadly serious about threats to its purity. There should have been an audible gasp because we mentioned the word deadly serious. You want another run at that? Here we go. God loves his church so much, he is deadly serious about threats to its purity. There ought to be a little bit of carefulness when we walk into church for fear that we would bring something into church that would threaten the purity of the church. Let's look at the marks of a great church, beginning in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now, the number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of that which was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need." There's four marks of a great church just mentioned in that paragraph. The first is there was great unity 
A great church is marked by great unity. It says in verse 32 that these people that experienced the lordship of Jesus Christ and worshiped him and came together under the lordship of Jesus Christ were of one heart and one soul. The lordship of Jesus was so evident in their lives that they laid down their differences. They laid down their political ideologies. They laid down their preferences. They laid down everything else that would divide them and they unified as one heart and one soul. Wouldn't it be great if we were in a church where everybody agreed on everything. Yeah, it's not going to happen. But there's one thing we have to agree on, and it's the only thing that matters. It is the lordship of Jesus Christ. And when young people and old people are united under the lordship of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what is different about them. When men or women are united under the lordship of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what divides them. When Republicans and Democrats, I can't even say the word. Like, was he trying to say the word Democrat in church? No wonder he couldn't say it. That's what some of you are thinking right now. And that's because we're not united under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter everything that divides us. If we're united under the lordship of Jesus Christ, that's what makes a great church. Now, you have to remember, this was the only church in town. Some of you are in this church because you didn't like what was going on in your last church. There's some people that have left this church because they didn't like what was going on in this church. What if there was only one church? And, it, you know, you couldn't say, well, I'm looking for a bigger church, or I'm looking for a smaller church, or I'm looking for a more traditional church, or a more contemporary church. I, you know, you, you, you lay down your preferences when there's only one church. And these people were the, in the minority because they were being persecuted, and they were just looking for anybody that had any commonality under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That was a great church because they were of one heart and one mind. And then secondly, it mentions great power. Now listen, that is amazing that it mentions these people had power. These were the weakest people on the planet. They had no political power. They had no economic power, but they had Holy Spirit power. And you know when you step into a church and there is Holy Spirit power. And you should be able to detect when you walk into a church and there is no Holy Spirit, power. There was great power, and the reason there was great power is because they were focused on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were sharing their testimonies. They weren't debating who was the greatest football team, and they weren't sharing recipes about what the greatest um, meal they cooked this last week, or who their favorite political candidate were. They, they were what was on their minds and on their lips and in their mouths was the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not only did they have great power, they had great grace. Did you see it there? Great grace. These people were not perfect. These, these were a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners. And yet, there was great grace. The scripture says that God gives grace to the humble. And so often, churches are not marked by humility. They're marked by powering up and trying to, to, to scream and shout other people down that don't agree with them. Great grace is given to people who have great humility. And then the final thing here it says, which probably got your attention, there was great 
generosity. No one claimed ownership of that which belonged to them. They were exchanging what could have been spent on themselves to meet the needs of others. Now think about the context in which this is, this is happening here. Remember, on the day of Pentecost, just a few days before this, in Acts chapter two, the scripture says that, that people from all over the world had gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, the, the, the Pentecost. It was a huge celebration. And when the Holy Spirit came and the church was born, many of these people did not go back to their homeland. They remained in Jerusalem. That was part of the number that added to the church. There weren't churches back where they were, so they stayed in Jerusalem, which means that they needed to be cared for. They needed housing and they needed food. And and so people opened up their homes and they shared. Other people were losing their jobs because they were being persecuted, declaring the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so everybody took care of everyone. The church was so overwhelmed with the goodness and the grace and the generosity of God, they gave everything they had to meet every need of everyone in the church. The needs of the church were taken care of because the members of the church didn't claim ownership over their stuff. They transferred the ownership of everything they had to God. Now, that doesn't mean they enabled lazy people. It means that they saw a need and they met it. That's a big difference. Now, some of you may be reading that and you're like, that looks like socialism. That looks like communism. Does the Bible teach socialism, communism? No, not in that sense, not in a political sense. The difference is this. They didn't give because they had to. They gave because they wanted to. Here's what the Bible teaches about giving. Now, some of you have been taught some stuff about giving that, that it's okay, it's adequate, but it's not entirely what the Bible teaches. Many of you have heard the concept of tithing. Raise your hand if you um, have been taught the concept of tithing. Remain your hand, keep your hand in the air if you tithe. Okay, I got some of you right there. It's like, or if you would like to start today. Um, all right, so listen, nothing wrong with tithing. Tithing's kind of an Old Testament principle, but in actuality, it was kind of the Old Testament taxation system for the theocracy that was Israel. And as a matter of fact, there were three, t- there were three tithes. Um, one you gave every third year. So if you really want to be a biblical tither, you need to give 23 and a third percent of your income. That's a, that's a biblical Old Testament tithing taxation system. Now, that, that's fine. If you want to give 23 and a third percent, I'm sure that the Lord would consider that very generous. Um, if, if you want to tithe, I'm sure that's generous too. But here's what the New Testament teaches about giving. Give whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, to whomever you want. That principle is found in this verse, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Each one must give. Now, if we stopped right there, that would be enough for some of you. Each one must give. And some of you are not giving. And you're disobedient to the Lord and you're giving and it's probably, it's no wonder things are not going well in your financial life. You gotta start with this principle. You've gotta become a generous giver like the the people of the New Testament. They were so overwhelmed with the generosity of God that it overflowed into generosity with other people. Everyone must give as he has decided in his heart. Notice it doesn't say as he is compelled by the church leadership. No, 
This is something from the inside out, not forced upon you from the outside in. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly. That's the first mistake you can make. Oh, got to go to the church and give my money again. Not that, not reluctantly, and not under compulsion. You can't force people to give. For God loves a cheerful giver, one that it's like it's such an honor. It just brings me such joy to invest in the things of God and to meet the needs of others. Now, before you can do this, you have to be like these great Christians in this great church. It's a very simple principle. The first principle, before you can ever even do this, you have to transfer everything you currently own to God. You have to take your hands off of that which you think belongs to you. That's what it says. It's like nobody treated the stuff they had as if it belonged to them. So have you given everything you have to God? If we had time in the service, we'd just take out a list and like, just, just list everything you currently own. Checking account, savings account, stocks, bonds, CDs, IRAs, cars, vehicles, property, home, forks, knives, socks. I mean, you can go down the list, right? And you're just like, you know what, Lord? None of this belongs to me. It's all a gift to you. And if you want to use it for any purpose, I will gladly move it wherever you want it to go. That was the mark of this church. Now, in order to do that, the first thing you have to do is you have to give your life to the Lord, okay? You, some of you are like, that sounds ridiculous. It's because you're not under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You haven't even given your life, your heart, your mind, your soul. Lord, I give you my life. If you've never done that, do that right now. Like, I'm tired of wrestling with this. I surrender control. My life doesn't belong to me. Lord, I give you my life. And then, Lord, everything that once belonged to me now belongs to you. And Lord, everything I have is available to you at any time for any purpose. Does that sound radical to you? That is the mark of a great church. And this is the mark of a genuine believer in Jesus. Let me put it this way. Let's say that you were to go to your bank tomorrow. And you walk up to the teller, you fill out a withdrawal slip. Like, I want to withdraw $100. You slide that across to the teller. The teller looks at it like, just a minute. And she goes back and starts talking to the bank manager, and they have this kind of lengthy conversation. And she comes back and she says, um, you know what? We really like your money. And we're using your money you can come back next week and ask for it again, but this week, we're gonna keep your money. Now, at that point, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna like try to convince her, like, that's not your money, that's my money, and I have the right to move my money wherever I want it to go. Well, you think you might, are you gonna put any more of your money in that bank? No. So what if God comes to you and says, hey, I want to move some of my money out of your account into the account of somebody else? And you say, but God, I like your money. I'm using your money. You can come back next week and I'm, I'll pray about it. And if I feel like it, then I might give you some of your money back. Question, you think God 
is going to put any more of his money in your bank because you haven't transferred the ownership of everything that you think belongs to you to God. And that's what this church did. It was the mark of a great church. They had great unity. They had great power. They had great grace. And they had great generosity. And that leads us to the next chapter. Is it okay if we go into chapter five? All right, everybody look at your Bible. What is the first word in the first verse of chapter five in your Bible? Let's all say it together on the count of three. Three, two, one. Oh my goodness. This is not good. By the way, I forgot to read the last few verses of chapter four. Look at verse 36. We're introduced to a member of this early church. His name was Joseph, thus Joseph, verse 36, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and then he transferred the ownership, it no longer belonged to him, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we, we have this we have this specific example of a specific man. How many of you have heard of Barnabas in the, in the Bible before? Barnabas is like your favorite character in the Bible because he was the son of encouragement. Do you know somebody that's just like encouraging just all the time? They're always smiling. They're, they always have a word of encouragement to you. Don't you love to be around those people? This was Barnabas. They, he was such an encourager, they just nicknamed him the son of encouragement. And then yet, first word, first verse, chapter five, what is it? But there's this other guy in the church. And we're going to be introduced to him. And we're going to learn the threat to a holy church through this guy. Notice what it says in verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira. Now, next week we're having baby dedications at the church. I am quite certain no one is going to bring a baby named Ananias or Sapphira because these people didn't do it right. Notice verse two. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back a portion for himself. Notice in verse one, I forgot to read. Let me, let me start over verse one. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property just like who? Just like Barnabas did. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, I want to be real clear. He hasn't yet sinned because there was nobody compelling everybody to bring all their stuff. It was a voluntary thing to give in the offering at this church. Nobody said you had to, but everybody seemed to want to. And yet, Ananias and Sapphira did it a different way. Verse three, but Peter, the pastor, said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Notice the ownership was yours. You could have done anything you wanted to with it. But um, it says, after it was sold, was it not in your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart and have not lied to man but God? Now, notice here, 
The Holy Spirit is identified as God, lying to the Holy Spirit, lying to God, lying to man, and it was all a conspiracy between a husband and a wife. What do you think that conversation went like on Saturday night? Hey, honey, I've got an idea. If you really want the same praise and the same reputation as Barnabas, then let's fake them out. Let's pretend to give all, but let's only give some. Again, it was not a sin to give some. It was a sin to pretend to give all and then give some. Now, I don't know how conversations with your spouse goes, but like if somebody in in your marriage walks up and says, hey, honey, let's devise a plan to sin together against the church. You would think that one person in the marriage would be smart enough or at least fear God enough to say, no, we can't do that. That would threaten the great unity and the great power and the great grace and the great generosity that we have seen demonstrated in this great church. But neither one of them did that. And so they conspired to sin together. Let me tell you what the equivalent of that would be. What if, uh, what if I did like my friend, I have a, I have a dear uh, brother friend, his name is Dwight McKissick. He pastors a church in Arlington, Texas. He is a very large man. It's an African-American church. I preached in his church. And I remember when I was in his church one, one Sunday, um, it was time for the offering. And so he just comes to the edge of the platform. He's got his big Bible in his hand. He's like, it's time for the offering. And there was cheers and applause in the church. We used to do that around here. Did you know that? In the early days, how many of you remember when like, I would say, it's time for the offering. We would cheer and applaud. Like, this is the greatest event of the whole week. We get to give our money to God, right? Maybe we should reinstitute that. I'd be ready for that next week. The problem is, is we can't pass the plates anymore because y'all are all diseased and stuff, I guess. I don't know why we stopped passing the plates. I don't know, and like, don't transfer the, anyway, maybe we should reinstitute that. So one day it's coming, Lord, please. So Pastor Dwight says, it's time for the offering. And then he says this, I want all my tithers to stand. And I looked around and it's like, everybody stood up. Like, this is amazing. What if we did that next week? I want all the people to give 10% of their money to the church to please stand. What if we did that today? Here's why we're not gonna do that. Because I don't want you to be tempted to lie. And some of you would be tempted. You know what? If I don't stand right now, I'm really going to be, you know, like, I, people think I tithe. And if I don't tithe, it's like, well, I'm going to stand anyway. And God knows my heart. And I'll ask him forgiveness later. Listen, that's what's about to happen in this church. Ananias and Sapphira are about to pretend that they're more generous than they actually are. Look at verse 5. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard. And the young men rose and wrapped, up, wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of three hours. By the way, you think church lasts a long time around here? After three hours of this church service, his wife came in 
not knowing what had happened, verse eight, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, well, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of God? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Can you imagine being in a church like this? I mean, you had your elder team, you had your deacon team, you had your production team, you had your children's ministry team, and you had your burial team. For anybody who was bold enough to threaten the holiness in the church. Question, what was the sin that brought such a swift and severe judgment from God. I mean, God doesn't kill everybody who sins or we'd all be dead, right? Why was this so severe? I think it was sin on four different layers, four different levels. First of all, there was the sin of the love of money. It had something to do with the way that Ananias and Sapphira were handling God's money. Now, I don't have time to get into it, but I thought about it. There's about five ways you can sin with money. I want to give them to you real quick. Does everybody understand you should never take with that which doesn't belong to you? All right, do we need to spend time on that this morning? I think it's one of the Ten Commandments. Don't steal. Or you can sin with money by loving it. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. We fall into love with money and we do whatever we can to get it. And then Jesus said we can't serve money. You can't serve two masters. You're either gonna love one and hate the other. You can't serve both God and money. How do you serve money? You obey it. He's like, how do you obey money? Ever heard the term money speaks, money talks? You ever heard that? Do you know what money says? Money says the same thing to you that God says to you. Trust me. I will give you significance. I will bring you security. God's the only one that can fulfill on that promise. And yet we serve it all the time because we believe if I just had a little more, it would make me more significant. It would make me more secure. I feel so insecure. If I had so much more money, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be secure and so we serve our money. Don't serve money. You can sin with money by hoarding it. And that doesn't mean that you have a lot. It means you love it, you serve it, and then you keep it for yourself instead of saying, God, it all belongs to you. It's all a gift. And there is something very sanctifying every week or every time you get paid, prying your fingers off of that which God has given you and giving back to him. And then finally, here's what Ananias and Sapphira did. Use it to control, manipulate, or deceive others. Use your money to pretend to be stronger than you actually are. That was the first layer of sin, was the love of money. The second layer of sin was hiding sin. Hypocrisy. They pretended to be more generous and spiritual and strong, more godly than they actually were. This is the fatal flaw in the church. The fatal flaw is projecting strength, hiding weakness, and covering sin. 
and we do it all the time. We put on a mask. We put on our best behavior. We don't confess sin. We hide our weakness. We don't share our vulnerabilities. We project strength. That's what Ananias and Sapphira did, and it is deadly to the church. Pretending to be more spiritual than you are is deadly to your relationship to God, and it's deadly to your relationship to this church. Pretending to be stronger than you are is taken seriously by God. Pretending to be something that you are not is fatal to relationships, and we've all done it. You say, not me. You ever used an Instagram filter? You just made yourself look better than you are. Have you noticed the news feature on Zoom? Check a box, it's like, clean up the image. Like all of a sudden, you don't have pimples and blemishes on your face on Zoom. Yeah, we all project ourselves to be better than we are. And yet, Ananias and Sapphira didn't have an Instagram filter, so they had an Insta-Lie filter. And they projected something that they were not. And they believed they could get away with sin. Listen, if you hear nothing else that I say to you this morning, we cannot hide our sin from God. Notice this verse in Hebrews chapter 4. It says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That should strike some fear in your heart. And then 1 Peter chapter 4 is like, well, I thought we were like the people of God and God just kind of loves us and overlooks our sin. No, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. God is serious about protecting his family, his household. You say, I thought God was loving. Yeah. He loved his church so much, he killed that which would threaten it. That's how much God loves you. That's how much God loves this church. And it begins with us. And what will it be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Aren't you glad you're in the family of God? Here's the third layer to their sin. It wasn't just the love of money. It wasn't just hiding sin. It was the fear of man that was the root of all of it. They wanted the acceptance and the attention and the approval of others. They wanted an elevated um, respect from others in the church like Barnabas had received. And that is so much a part of who we are. We all want the praise of others. And it's gotta be rooted out of us there's gonna come a time you cannot have the approval of man and the approval of God at the same time. Whosever approval you live for will determine the outcome of your life. Let me ask you this question. Do you think Ananias and Sapphira were saved? Do you think they were genuine believers? I think they were. I think what happened to them was what Hebrews chapter 12 calls the discipline of the Lord. God took them out. God purified and, pur and purged his church. I believe that they're in heaven, but I think there was a lot of reward lost on that day. They got the praise of man for a while until their sin was exposed. And God made sure 
that their names didn't live up to their reputation. Do you know what Ananias' name actually means? Mercy. Mercy of God. And there was a time when Ananias knew the mercy of God. And yet, his life ended it in the discipline of God. And then finally, it was rooted in love of self. Not just love of money, but love of self. He feared man more than God. He wanted the approval, the attention. He wanted the praise of men. He wanted others to think highly of him. So, what do we learn from this? Listen, church, this is not just ancient history. This is for us today. We must never treat holy things as ordinary, but rather approach God and his church carefully. Do not take for granted what God has done to build and grow his church. We must not pretend to be something that we're not, but rather approach God and his church authentically. Bring your weakness, bring your sin, bring your struggle, just deal honestly with it. The church is not made up of perfect people. It's made up of weak people who need grace. But when you project yourself as something you're not, what you're saying is, I don't need grace. Grace is available for those who will humble themselves. And then we must not withhold that which belongs to God, but rather give to meet the needs of others cheerfully. Finally, what are the signs of a purified church? Story continues here. Look at verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Fear in the church. Are you afraid this morning? Do you know that until you experience fear, you haven't truly worshiped? Is there a, an understanding of the holiness of God? Is there a sense of our unworthiness in his presence? What is the fear of God? I've, I've given you this definition before, but the fear of God is the continual awareness that I am in the presence of God. He sees everything I do. He hears every word I say. He knows everything. Every thought I think, and I will be accountable to him for all of it. Living my life with the awareness of his presence governs my behavior in the same way that that little camera on top of the traffic light governs whether or not you punch it when it turns red or whether you hit the brake. Do you remember how many times you used to run that red light before the camera was there? And now you know you'll get caught. What if we lived with the continual awareness that God sees everything I do, hears everything I say, knows everything I think. And it's not just being afraid that I cower in God's presence, but it motivates me to do the things that that please God, to bring pleasure to his heart, knowing he sees when I give and nobody thanks me. He sees when I serve and nobody notices. That's living 
in the fear of God. The fear of God sparks our worship and it fuels our holiness. Ananias and Sapphira lost the sense of the fear of God. Some of you say, well, man, this seems like pretty harsh treatment. I'm I'm glad God didn't do that anymore. Um, I thought God was a God of love and Man, that that sounds like the God of the Old Testament. I mean, Old Testament, you see this wrathful God and he really takes vengeance on sinners. Can I remind you where we are in the Bible? We are on the other side of the resurrection. We are in the age of grace. We're in what the Bible calls the end times. God still takes sin very seriously. What did God do? What What was the cause of death? For Ananias and Sapphira, we, we don't know. Did they have a stroke? Did they have a heart attack? What, how did God kill them? I want you to notice this first in Job chapter 12, verse 10. It says this. God says, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. That breath you just took, It was in the hand of God. It was a gift to you. The next breath you take will be given to you by the hand of God. Do you know that all God has to do to take away life is to close his hand? We should live continually in the presence of a holy God. Some of us are living our life as if God doesn't see us, God doesn't know what we're doing. He doesn't know what we're thinking. Listen, if right now in this moment, the Holy Spirit would give you an awareness of his presence, it would change so much of your behavior. And it would create a great church. Notice it goes on in verse 12. It says, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. Then I want you to notice verse 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Do you see that? The very first church had such an impact on the community that few people dared to join it, yet everyone held it in high esteem. Is that the testimony of our church? Today, it seems like many people desire to join the church with a loose, half-hearted commitment, and yet few people hold the church in high esteem. The sign of a purified church is that people are careful about their decision to join it and they are careful about their decision to criticize it. This was a church that was purified and there was such great power and such great uh, grace on this church that everybody held it in high esteem, but everybody thought twice about whether or not they're going in that place. 
especially if you're a hypocrite, especially if you're going to hide sin, especially if you fear man more than you fear God. Notice the purified church gains the respect of an outside world, and the purified church influences the world for good. I want you to notice the impact this church had on the surrounding community, beginning in verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the church. Multitudes, both men and women. Don't you love that he mentions both genders there? Men and women responding to the gospel, repenting of sin, coming under the lordship of Jesus Christ so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid hands, laid on them cloths and mats. And Peter came by at least his shat, that at least his shadow might fall upon them. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and the afflicted with unclean spirits. And they were all healed. I cannot explain to you that phenomena, but I believe it. And I do know this. When God purifies his church, it has an impact on the world for good. People say, man, you sick? That's the place to go. Those people pray for you over there. Those people are in contact with God. Don't sin while you're over there because that's not going to end well. But man, you want to you be around a people that have power with God? And there's great grace. Nobody's living in judgment. Nobody's knocking you over the head because you have sin because there's great grace in this church. They're all sinners. They all know it but they're all humble enough to admit it. Isn't that a great church? I want you to stand with me right now. I want to ask you some questions. In relation to this church, Gospel City Church here this morning, are you of one heart and one soul with the gathered family of God? Are you fully immersed in this family Are you an encourager like Barnabas to people around you? Or are you a hypocrite and a pretender like Ananias and Sapphira? This morning, I want to invite you. If you're not taking full advantage of that which God has done in giving you a great church, fold in, come into the life of the church, get connected, find a pastor, talk to an elder, Apply for membership. Come and profess your faith in Christ. Get baptized. Get in a small group. You have needs? There's people in this church who would love to meet those needs. Pray for you. Care for you. Even generously give to you. That happens all the time around here in the context of small groups. Are you hiding sin? God gives grace to the humble, those that are humble enough to admit it to cry out for grace. You can find new power to live in the face of temptation. Are you living in the fear of God? Let the fear of God this morning spark your worship and fuel your holiness through the week. There's a a great song. They say it's an old song now. I remember when it was new. That's how old I am. We're going to sing it right now and Rather than pray, I want this to be the prayer of our heart. Micah's going to lead us. Let this be the prayer of your heart. 